Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 133. I wanted to start off by uh, reminding everybody, but also thanking everybody. Uh, I wanted to remind you that last week we posted two uh, mini-sodes. The first was about uh, my thoughts uh, uh, regarding Jurassic World. Um, they're really nerdy and really pretentious, but I feel very passionately about them. And so, um, and I enjoy talking about Jurassic World on, uh, on a thematic level, probably more so than on an artistic level, actually. So that's available at the website. And then also, um, uh, I recorded a, a mini sode that's actually an hour and 15 minutes, so it's not actually sm- short. Uh, but I recorded one about marriage, and I'll go ahead and let the cat out of the bag. I tried to keep things secret. Um, there's a guest on that mini sode, and it is, in fact, my wife, Jen. And we talk about uh, being married for 10 years and what that's like and that kind of thing. So, uh, And it, that was a lot of fun. I think Jen did a great job on the show. And so those are both available at the website. Um I think that is about it as far as announcements go. Oh, hang on. I'm not, that's not correct. Uh, man, Comic-Con really snuck up on me this year. So Comic-Con is next week and next Thursday at a bar, I believe called the bootlegger. Uh, we will be having uh, a meetup for battleship pretension and a few other podcasts. Uh, and you are welcome to come to that. If you're in the San Diego area, it's at 8 PM. Once again, uh, next Thursday, the, I believe that's the eighth. Um, is that correct? Maybe it's the ninth. I don't remember now. Anyway, you guys can look it up. The first, the Thursday of Comic Con, um, and so yeah, we're at the Bootlegger. Come and say hello to me. I love to uh, meet listeners and uh, talk about stuff with them. So uh, I think that is. Oh yeah, and then thank you to everybody for uh, your feedback in regards to the marriage episode. For those that uh, that listened to it, um, it it uh, was very nice. You know, it, it felt very self indulgent to do. And so to get uh, such positive feedback from people was uh, very helpful. So I think that is it as far as announcements. Um, so I will go ahead and bring in my co-host, Reed Lackey. Reed, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm, All right. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, I wish you I, could see the look on his face. I need to, I need to start trying to think of a better uh, sort, of, sort of response, some of varied response, because I think every single time I've been here, I've said something like, happy to be here. Well, is be it, here. Yeah, I'm glad that you're happy to be here. Don't get me wrong, but you're going to be here more often. I know. So you've got to start getting used to this. <sighs> That's true. This needs to not be so big of a deal for you. Okay, maybe give it another couple of months. There you go. When I'm not quite so starstruck, that will that'll, that'll help. <laughs> this is uh, an off mic conversation. Like you're not really anymore, right? No, no. I mean, like we had one, we had a lunch a long time ago and you were clearly a little shy at the time. It's true. It's true. And I think the first time you were on the show, I think it more, it was just the fact of you being on the show that you were like, Oh, this is very strange. But yeah, that's all that's over right. now, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Now, now I'm a veteran, yeah. <laughs> an old, old, old pro, as it were. Hopefully, I have been uh, the show and myself have been uh, adequately demystified for you. And you realize, <laughs> oh wow, this guy, yeah, that neurosis is not a character he's playing. <laughs> so, um, okay, so yeah, this week uh, we are going to be talking about a movie that came out a couple years ago and that I actually really liked when I saw it and immediately thought I would like to talk about it on more than one lesson. And uh, was looking for the opportunity to do so, and then uh, Reed put it out there as a possibility. And uh, so we jumped right on it, and that is John Lee Hancock's Saving Mr. Banks. Now, I have a, a torn relationship with John Lee Hancock. He directed The Alamo in 2004, which is a movie I like a lot, 
I, I think it's really, really good, and mm-hmm. I highly recommend people see it. But he also directed The Blind Side in 2009, which I, I'm reluctant to say I hated it, but I think I might. Uh, go back hmm. and listen to the More Than One Lesson episode about it. I don't have a lot to say. A lot of good things to say. I have a lot to say, <laughs> just not a lot of positivity. So, um, so yeah, and then I, he also directed The Rookie, which I actually haven't seen. I have um, seen The Rookie. It's good. Uh, if I were to rank these, I think the Alamo's the, the best of the three you mentioned. Okay. I think Blindside's the weakest of the three you mentioned. Rookie's, okay. Rookie's somewhere in the middle. There's a lot of good things that I liked about The Rookie, but, but it's got, it's got some areas where it, sort of slides into cliche and predictability. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I really liked the Alamo a lot. Um, particularly I liked Billy Bob Thornton and yeah. I thought he was, I thought he was wonderful as that character. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it way more than I was expecting to. And so what I'll say before we even jump full on into the movie, what I'll say is that, um, John Lee Hancock is an interesting director in that, <sighs> So I, I, so like, like so many people, I subscribe to the auteur theory, uh, of filmmaking, which is to say that every filmmaker will put their individual stamp on a film. And, and, you know, if you watch all the movies of like an Alfred Hitchcock, you can definitely see where he is, right. not even necessarily what he believes or anything like that, though. I think there's some of that in there as well, but just, you can see the the types of choices you can see it in Scorsese, Spielberg, like some of the best directors you think of, um, I think fall very much into this, but then on Battleship Pretension many years ago, uh, in an episode that people did not respond well to, um, I should say, oh. uh, we talked about the idea of the journeyman, the huh. journeyman director, the one who can adapt so thoroughly and so well to a specific genre or a specific story that he actually doesn't – that even if the movie is good um, or even great, uh, you don't see a lot of that filmmaker. Um, oh, OK. And – I feel like John Lee Hancock is that. I think he's a journeyman director. I think he directs things in a very straightforward manner. Um, I think he will try to capture certain, you know, the essence of a story. I think the Alamo, you know, it, fe- it does feel different than saving Mr. Banks. No, um, totally. You know, and so I, and I, but I think both of them are directed very well, but I don't, if you were to ask me, hey, what's John Lee Hancock's style? I would say, um, not me and this isn't me i'm not saying mediocre that's a different thing i'm not saying uh unmemorable that's a different thing i i would i'd probably say straightforward yeah you know he just accomplishes the task at hand yeah and does it in some cases perhaps rises above far above what you would say was merely competent sure and and even steps into hey this is these are great choices yeah but always sort of uh just capable yeah and uh so that's you know and i feel bad saying that about him but again he makes good i think he makes good movies he often makes good choices he's a very capable director like those are not bad things but when i think of the best filmmakers working today i would i would probably rattle off easily 150 before i got to him Um, i agree with not because again simply because i he doesn't jump to mind maybe maybe not best but like the most influential directors or Mm -hmm. the most distinct directors then i would get to like 150 before I got to him. So, yeah. And I agree. I actually had never heard the theory articulated that way, but I do agree with it. I think there are directors that Alfred Hitchcock is actually my favorite director. Mm-hmm. I, I really, uh, I've seen all of his films, most of them multiple times. And, and I definitely agree. You can tell 
his stamp on something. And then yeah. there's plenty of other directors where I just, if you look, sometimes if I'm watching the movie, I'm like, oh, I want to know who directed this. And then when I look at the their filmography on IMDb or something, I'm like, really? Those are, these are dramatically different yeah. like everything there's there's no apparent through line of even even theme or yeah. choice of project let alone um stylistically or the the kinds of uh artistic choices that they make everything is just sort of a mesh of of types and it's really interesting because the auteur theory i think is and some people say it's dumb and and i i can understand why you know one can make the argument because I think some people say that, well, the auteur theory always applies. If a director goes from one project to another, you'll always be able to tell that it's them. And so it's like, well, I think that might be a bit much. But, you know, uh, once you really start delving into it, it can be very exciting because you have people like, for example, Tim Burton, who will always bring a very specific visual style to his films. Uh, but then you get someone like Roman Polanski, who I think is one of the best arguments for the auteur theory, hmm. who ha- who has worked in a number of different genre, but returns over and over and over to this idea of complete of a person feeling isolated and the world being against them, whether it be Rosemary's Baby or mm-hmm. Oliver Twist. He will return to the pianist Chinatown. Yeah. He will always come back to that. Everyone is against you. You're all alone. And chances are, if, if there's somebody that is that seems to be your friend, they're probably going to betray you. <laughs> um, and so, like, just over and over, he'll come to that. And then when you find out aspects about his life, mm, yeah, that you know he's uh, lost his family in the Holocaust, and then lost his wife to the Manson family, yeah, yeah. and then pro- and then made a very bad and illegal and immoral choice with a young girl, yeah, and has been basically on the run from the u.s government ever since it's it all kind of makes sense but he was doing this before that even happened you know he was making these kinds of movies before then so anyway uh we spent longer on the auteur theory than i was expecting to (laughs) uh especially considering that we're talking about a guy who i don't consider to be an auteur uh odd that we that that happened but um but yeah so uh to move into the film itself so saving mr banks is the story of P.L. Travers, who is the writer of the original uh, Mary Poppins books, um, and her relationship with Walt Disney, the, a- yeah. the actual man. These days when you say Walt Disney, you mean the whole company. But I mean right. the actual man, Walt Disney, who wanted to secure the rights uh, for uh, Mary Poppins to turn it into a movie. And so it's about the two of them sort of squaring off against each other yeah. because she – holds the character of Mary so close to her that, and she has such a low opinion of what Walt Disney does All right. that she does not want to let him have it. And it's about maybe some of the reasons that she feels so close to the character and, uh, and a number of other things. So that's the basic story. And what I like is that it's, it's more than just like a basic making of like, Hey, here's the story behind Mary Poppins. Right. It's, they use that as an opportunity. Like, did you did you ever see the movie Hitchcock? Well, I guess you yes. probably did. Yeah, no, I did with uh, um, the Anthony Hopkins one, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah, I saw that. And I saw uh, what's the other one called? The one with uh, Toby Jones. Oh, now I don't remember. Yeah, uh, but the but I saw both of those within yeah. like a few days of each other. Yeah, um, and it's now Hitchcock. I think it, it it does some good things with Hitchcock's wife. I think yes. anytime it focuses on her, the film feels distinct. But as it's when it comes to talking about either psycho or why Hitchcock made it the way he did or whatever, 
I feel like, yeah, okay, who cares? Like this is mm. the, you've taken a one hour featurette on a DVD and turn it into a movie yeah. that I don't find remarkably compelling. Whereas I think the approach for saving Mr. Banks is compelling. Oh, I agree. Because I think they start with character. They start with motivation. They start with why would somebody hold, and it's an interesting story mm-hmm. in general. Um, and then they just start asking why, and then get, I think they write the characters very well and get good actors to play them. And so, um, yeah, I agree. so yeah, I responded surprisingly well to saving Mr. Banks. There's a lot of critics that did not like it, hmm. um, because they thought it didn't do justice to the real PL Travers, who was much less, uh, family friendly than she it wasn't so <laughs> much, wasn't so much a lovable curmudgeon, uh, yeah. as she was in this. And so I, you know, I can understand that, but I feel like this is the movie that that is here. There's probably a PL Travers movie to be made hmm. sometime in the future. They'll be much closer to who she actually was, but this is the movie that is here in front of me. And as far as this goes, I find it, uh, really, really effective for me emotionally. Um, I don't think it's a perfect film and we'll talk more about that later, but I really responded well to it. Your yeah. thoughts, Reed. Yeah, I, I would say they're, they're close to yours, maybe a little, uh, a, a little bit less enthusiastic about it. The, the funny thing about it, when I re, when I saw the movie in the theater, there were things that I really liked and there were things that I didn't like very much. And when I rewatched it again in preparation for the episode, the things that I liked, originally I liked even more and responded to them even more strongly. And the things that I didn't care for, I responded to even less where I was just sort of zoned out for a moment. Um, ironically, some of you you want me to get into a few specifics. Uh, ironically, um, the, the, the framing device of, I don't know which would be the framing device. If there even, if you even could call it a framing device. Yeah, I guess you could just say parallel narratives. Yeah, that would be better. Yeah. That would be better. It's like the Godfather part two, you know, like which, (laughs) is there a framing device or is it just two parallel stories? Right. And with the, the, when it keeps going back to what I think is, this is, this is why I'm uh, kind of torn about my opinion. I very quickly lose interest every single time it cuts back to showing her uh, as a child in Australia, mm-hmm. which I did, I did not expect it to. Like even even in my first viewing of it, I was like, get back to the to the navigation between Emma right. Thompson and Tom Hanks, and and I want to see like how they worked all of this out because you know going into the to the film, if you know anything about it, it's like, well, there exists a movie called Mary Poppins. So yeah. even if you knew nothing more than that, you know they're eventually going to – that's not really a spoiler. You know they're eventually going to come to yeah. to some form of agreement. But how do they do it? And the yeah. film does a very good job of establishing dire tensions between them, which mm-hmm. I was I was wondering a half, a half hour into it. I'm like, how in the world did this ever get made? And that I found very interesting. But even though I think – the actors are doing pretty good work. I I like Colin Farrell a lot. Yeah. I uh, uh I forget the actress's name, but the the actress who plays um, Mrs. Goff, uh, Ruth actually, Wilson. Ruth Wilson. Yes, yeah. I, I liked her in Luther a lot. She was in that that TV show, and I liked her in this yeah. a lot. Um, so I think she's a very capable actor, and I really like Rachel Griffiths, who who appears in. Uh, I, I won't spoil who she is, but but there's some ac- actors in that uh, in that backstory narrative that I think are doing good work, but I just I zone out during that. There's something about the present day of the film that is so compelling that I think whenever they go back to show you behind the scenes stuff, I I lost interest. And it, that happened even more so in my second viewing, where I found myself 
like glancing away and just really losing touch with the film. I think once, and yeah, we, we won't spoil who Rachel Griffiths is, but, but the, um, but as the, uh, as that story progresses and you start to see certain things fall into place mm-hmm. as far as her motivation, that's when I become more interested. I got you. But up until that point, I kind of agree with you. I, I, everything there is good. Yeah, it's shot well. It's written well. It's acted well. But I'm less and I was less interested in that story as well. I accepted it as okay. Th- we are watching her motivation, right? Uh, and I'm and so I'm okay with that. Um, but what I will say is that like one is they both have to do with Mary Poppins, mm-hmm. but one has so directly to do with the movie Mary Poppins. You know, one is very much about like, you know, they're talking about casting. They're talking about hearing the songs. And so, you know, you could go into this saying like, I want to know how Mary Poppins was made. Well, if that's your goal, then immediately one of these stories is going to be much more interesting to you. Um, But then also when you think about it, these, we have these two big personalities. We have Walt Disney uh, whose name we are very familiar with, but right. maybe as a man we're not that familiar with. Mm. And then we have P.L. Travers, who we may not be familiar with, but it, but estab- is so firmly established as a strong character. Absolutely. Played wonderfully by Emma Thompson. But uh, that I think we watch that, and it's like, so we're watching big people, we're watching big characters put together a movie that is that we've all grown up loving. Right. You know? uh, so I think... In, I think we'll just naturally gravitate more towards that. And because for me, I, I always find it invigorating watching the creative process. Not that we get a lot of it, but you right. get to see things come together over yeah. the course of the film. And it's just like, oh, that's exciting. I love that. You know, yeah. in that, in the way, like uh, Finding Neverland, I kind of, mm. I was that way as well, where, you know, it's about him writing the play Peter Pan and you see certain aspects in, in his own life that inform choices he makes. And so, yeah, that is interesting to watch. So, uh, yeah, I agree with you. The Australia stuff, while all of it good, I think is less interesting. Yeah. I think it's less interesting than the quote unquote present day stuff. I say present day, you know, 19- right. It takes place in the sixties. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think too, the, it, it it speaks to there's also just a very there's a, such a drastically different tone mm-hmm. when we're seeing the Australia story even though it feels like like I feel a bit like uh, like I'm not being terribly fair to the film and to the filmmaker because it, it feels seamless at times but like yeah. a couple of the interjections didn't quite make sense to me like there's a moment where she's you know first arrives at the hotel in Los Angeles and she sees that she walks in it's a quite a humorous moment she walks in and when she walks into this hotel room that clearly Disney has established for her and it is littered with Disney stuffed animals there's yeah. a gigantic Mickey Mouse on her bed there's you know Pluto and Donald on the couch and a, and a, a basket of fruit and then you know you see her responding to that which incidentally I love the line that some viewers may not have caught where she says poor A.A. A. Milne who yeah. is the the creator of Winnie the Pooh which yeah. is another property Disney took and just completely animated yeah um, but uh, but it is interesting because she's you know, showing her disdain for all of the things that are in her hotel room. And then we get this little interjection back to the Australia stuff. And in that moment, it took me out of the movie Mm -hmm. that I was watching. And I feel like that happened a couple of times where I'm like, you know, this is, 
this is I don't know if maybe if those Australia scenes had been interjected at different points, I might have felt differently about them. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, it's it's difficult for me to know where they would have come in because you're seeing important pieces of information at key times. And, you know, I feel and uh, having not rewatched, unfortunately, um, I will ask. So right after that scene, it cuts to an Australia thing. Mm-hmm. Her as a kid. Is there by chance a stuffed animal involved when it cuts back? Not that I could, not that I could okay. see. Cause the and scene, I feel like that would have been, even if it's just showing her holding one, that's it. Like She might just, be holding a doll. Okay. She might be holding a doll. But, um, but the scene that it cuts to is the scene where they're seeing their new, far less grand house that they've had to move into because he, her, yeah. her father keeps losing jobs. So, um, that, so that's the scene that you come to. And maybe that's the thematic link is that she's stepping into all this opulence at the same yeah. time that, um, you know, she's remembering the big downgrade that her family had to take. I mean, yeah. maybe there is some argument to be made there. I feel like you can do a better job with transitioning if that's the mm-hmm. case. Like you could have her just looking at this hotel and then hearing the hearing the echo of her dad's voice trying to convince his daughters that this new house is is really good. Right, without ever you cutting know, away visually. That, exactly. that would be interesting. You know, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. It's um I'll say this tonally. I'm I'm actually okay with the difference between the modern day story and that because it sort of is like yes, behind this this clever stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and the and the this jaunty tone behind this is actually a lot of pain. Yeah, that she is carrying with her the, this idea that this story that she ha- has in her mind is just as present as what she's experiencing now. Yeah. Like she repeats this over and over to herself to the extent that it's all right now. It's all happening right now. Yeah. Um, now, if you're going to do that and if you want to really express that, like that's a, that can be a difficult thing to put out there. And it might require a little bit of filmic uh, experimentation or some artistry, some heightened artistry. Sure. Um, but uh, and again, stuff like that. This is a very st- John Lee Hancock directs it in a very straightforward way. Yeah. Here's the past. Here's the present. And yes, she is carrying this with her, but we need to make a clear delineation between the past and the present. It's like, you can blend these better. I mean, for me, like there's no better way to do this than the social network, which does such Mm. a great job of transitioning to past present and just going back and forth like that. Um, so yeah, it's again, it's, I mean, wouldn't it be fascinating if this story, even if it's the same script, same cast and all that, if this story was directed by somebody who was more willing to take risks and maybe the fact that this is a a film that involves like Walt Disney as a character and that it was produced by Disney studios, maybe there's not a whole lot of room for experimentation. Um, Yeah. But uh, you know, that's the way it goes. Well, and, and also sort of to play devil's advocate to myself, if that's possible, the, the one moment where I think they struck for me a bullseye on interplaying the two stories is a scene because the the narrative the 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 1960s narrative about the making of Mary Poppins she is entering into the Walt Disney Company she's meeting with the uh Don DeGrotti I think his name yeah. is and the Sherman brothers the Sherman brothers are going to be writing the music and Don DeGrotti is going to be the screenwriter and so she's meeting with them because she's obtained script approval she she has to have final authority on the script before yeah. she'll sign over the rights and there's a scene that it it might be 
might be my second favorite uh, scene in the movie. I say second favorite because I'm sure we'll be talking about my favorite scene later. The uh, the moment where they're writing, they're performing for her the song from Mary Poppins about the bank, where they're yeah. uh, they're you know singing the it's the song that in Mary Poppins the dad sings to his children about the value and importance yeah. of the bank, and simultaneously as they're presenting this story to her, she's remembering a very painful moment when her father made a very uh, poor series of choices very publicly yeah. um, a, a involving a bank and yeah. uh, and involving a very similar speech to what they're singing about. That, I thought, struck a, a bullseye of yeah. how those two stories are related and, and how they work together, sometimes even to the degree that Colin Farrell, who plays her father, is saying almost an identical line to what these people in the room with her yeah. are singing. And I thought it did so much in that moment to express the the anguish that she's going through about having to do this thing more yeah. so than i think any of the other interjections that the film does well and i you know what i think actually ties these things together you're right that moment is very powerful and and creates a very direct link between the stories we're seeing but i and i think for me what works What works probably most effectively as the link between the two is some of the choices that Emma Thompson makes as an actress. Mm. The way, like, just the little flutter across her face when she hears something that maybe triggers something in yes. her mind. But she's not, but like, she's a, she's a smart enough actress to not telegraph it too much because yeah. she knows that this woman is not, she keeps her emotions pretty close to the yeah. chest. Yeah. Um, but then also, there's a wonderful, uh, little monologue when they're talking about the character of Mr. Banks mm. and is going to, he's going to tear up his kids uh, paintings or something or drawings or whatever. Right. And she go, goes into this monologue and you actually, she does let herself get into it a little bit in which she's just talking about like, why do you, why do you have to make this man such a monster? Right. Why do you, you know, and, and in that moment, I, honestly, it almost feels as though Emma Thompson, the actress watched all the other footage yeah or maybe even hung out with colin farrell just huh. so she could like get a sense of like i really got a sense that of history there that yeah. she is arguing on very much on behalf of the of the the other story we're seeing yeah and has tremendous sympathy for this character and so like she sells the <laughs> she sell for me she sells the inclusion of the other story mm. um okay. yeah like and the other story being, again, told in a, in a perfectly fine and a very strong way. Um, and and I think as a viewer, I think I probably have a fair amount of affection for Colin Firth as an actor. I, I, I like him a lot. I, I think he makes good choices. And so as she's saying this and making this impassioned plea, like he doesn't have to be a monster. He doesn't have yeah. to be. He's, he's doing his best, you know. Um, and in that moment, of course, I'm thinking of him falling down drunk and, and trying to make good choices. Yeah. And so I think with I think her performance and I think she's written very well uh, moments like that are written very well. Yeah. Um, and that actually I've I talked I think I've talked about this on this show, but I certainly have talked about on BP that like, you know, film people, we tend to we focus on cinematography, we focus on editing and then because those are the things that separate film from other art forms yeah. or the previous art forms. Um, 
and uh, and then we'll talk about you know use of color and all that, but we'll talk about it very visually. And I think film people don't talk enough about the importance of character and the importance of acting hmm. um, as the thing that can pull the audience into the film and the thing that can sell the reality of your film. Right. Um, you know, if you have a character, let's say you have a very special effects heavy film, maybe your special effects aren't even that good. But if you have the character responding to it, if you have Robert Shaw responding to uh, being eaten by a shark in Jaws, yeah. an obviously fake shark, mm-hmm. but he sure is screaming like he's being eaten by a real shark. Yeah, and that's enough. He has mm-hmm. sold the reality through his performance. Yeah. And so I feel like this is a film that that takes things that maybe wouldn't work so well and makes it work through the sheer will of in this case emma thompson yeah um and i'm fine with using this as a transition into some of the some of the acting and we can we can go with hers first um she did not receive an oscar nomination a lot of people thought she would have oh i I was she didn't i was hoping she would have i thought she was really wonderful yeah she really was impeccable and i think and it's funny too because i think um of course uh, it almost becomes uh, tiresome to continue to say that Tom Hanks is an amazing actor and yeah. always delivers a, a top-notch performance, which he does again. Yeah. Um, but she is, she's really exceptional in this mm-hmm. and I've always liked her. But one of the things that I, and I, I won't, I won't, uh, sidetrack us too much, but, uh, I've felt this way recently about Denzel Washington when mm-hmm. I watched, um, the equalizer. Okay. And that's that. And I'm going to say this about Emma Thompson. There are some actors out there who I feel like I've seen every card in their deck. I yeah. feel like I know what they're capable of doing and they do it well. And then every once in a while, they'll do a movie. And even though the movie may be entirely conventional or everything might be uh, very cliched. Well, cliched is probably too harsh of a word, but it's just, it's something that I've seen a million times before. What they are bringing to it is, I, wow, I did not know that you could do this. And yeah. I felt this way about Emma Thompson in this. I felt that way about Denzel in The Equalizer, but I felt specifically from her that I I think it was probably my favorite performance I've ever seen her give. And I haven't seen more than maybe you know, five or six of her performances, yeah. but I, I thought she was absolutely outstanding in this movie. I, yeah. I feel like I saw every thought in her head, even when I didn't know what the thought was and, uh, never at a moment felt manipulated by her as an actor. I just yeah. felt like I'm watching this character have a very real internal struggle at the same time. They're having a very real external struggle and they have, uh, you know, very distinctive goals that they're trying to obtain in, you know, I don't want this film to be made yeah. uh, if it's going to be like this. But at the same time, there's a very real internal struggle that you see plastered on her face um, just in every single frame. She's wonderful. Yeah, she provides a lot of weight to a film that would otherwise feel could feel pretty light, actually, especially yeah. the, I mean, the tone of the film is one that is kind of comedic at times. And yeah. certainly and, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But like there's a lot more going on. I mean, th- this is not necessarily a family film, not to imply that it's inappropriate for the family, but right, I don't think right. kids will be interested in it. No, I agree. You know, they'll watch and be like, why are these adults angry? <laughs> why do I want to watch this? I thought this was about Mary Poppins. Yeah. Where, where are the cartoons? Can I just watch Mary Poppins? You know, <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, and she, but that's the thing. She has, she has to bear such a load as an actress because she has to be funny. Yeah. She has to be 
curmudgeonly and very prim and proper and all that, you know, uh, while also really conveying that underneath these prickly little things that she says underneath is a, is real hurt. Yeah. And that this is how it has manifested itself in her. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, but again, like it's this balancing act. Like if she, if she conveys too much hurt, then none of the, none of the humor will work and the film will become, I think at that point too heavy. Yeah. But if she doesn't convey any, then a, the, all the Australia stuff is going to seem way out of left field. Yeah. And B like when the time comes in her moment and her character does have these breakdowns, um, it will seem also out of left field. Like she needs to convey that she's always feeling this. It's always yeah. with her, but that she has found maybe not a way to accept it, but she's found a way to cope with it mm. without actually having to let it go. Um, and I, I, I feel like what I've seen of Emma Thompson, which also I think is not very much, uh, I think of her as actually a very emotive actress. Like she, I mean, the stuff that I've seen her in, you know, she has cried, she has yelled, she's gotten frustrated. Mm. Um, and for her to bring, keep all that inside, uh, and play someone who, who again, uh, keeps things pretty, keeps her emotions pretty close. Right. Um, while also, again, we still know everything she's feeling. I guess a good comparison, oddly enough, would be, um, John Hamm and Mad Men. Like huh. he's a guy who clearly is feeling a lot, yeah. But he's not going to give away anything. But you still know he's feeling a lot. Like it, the the brilliance of an actor to let you know what they're feeling without giving any indication that they're feeling it is right. astounding to me. Yeah. Um, and when it's done well, I, I have nothing but respect for it. And I think she does it well. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. And I, I think, uh, uh, you know, like the other person who's going to get a ton of press is of course, Hanks, who I think he's, he was a near perfect, if not absolutely perfect casting choice for Walt Disney, because yeah. he's immediately likable. He's got that sort of, uh, every man yeah. quality, but, but you definitely you, you feel like you can trust him. Exactly. Yeah. You're in good um, hands. And so the, uh, and, and he really, I mean, he also brings a great deal of depth to the character. I feel mm-hmm. like, which again, it's, it's becoming, uh, almost like a broken record to continually say, yes, Hanks is going to deliver every single time. Even if the movie doesn't, he's going to deliver. And, and he, he does a very, very good job of taking all of those components of the Walt Disney that we think we know and adding some additional layers. Like you see the frustration, you see how yeah. he, how he deals with the frustration. And, uh, also there, you know, there's a very nice moment of advocacy that he has. It's, it's my favorite. It's probably my favorite line in the movie, um, even though it's not my favorite scene, where he has some understanding for Emma Thompson's character because he says, I've fought this battle from her side and talks yeah. about when, uh, I guess, I don't know who Pat Powers was, but I guess there was some very rich and influential creative artist who wanted the rights to Mickey. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, I had that sketch of the, you know, the mouse in my pocket. And he said, that mouse is family. You know, and, and I think that's a powerful representation and Hanks delivers it so well. Um, I think that's a powerful idea of art being integrated into our lives in such a way that, um, that, that it does. These characters, these fictional characters can become like extended family members or, and, and they can be so close to us. And he, he, he did such a, an excellent job of, of taking, 
the character of Walt Disney to those places. And to, to go with what you were saying, actually, there's a kind of a story from my own life where, so I was uh, cast in Bus Stop, which was the Missouri All-State show. This is not the performance that I won Best Actor for. That was Henry II in The Lion in Winter. I was cast as uh, Sheriff Will Masters in Bus Stop. So it was a Missouri All-State show. So basically what you would do, so it's people from all over the state. You're not going to get to rehearse that much. So I think once, I, I believe it once a month, we would go to St. Louis, spend uh, a weekend rehearsing. We would come back a month later, do it again. We did this for several months, and then we finally performed at the Missouri Thespian Conference. Okay, all systems go. It's fine. Well, then the play got accepted to the International Thespian Festival in Lincoln, Nebraska, of all places. <laughs> um, so we performed it twice more. So we had to rehearse again and then do it, do two performances there. So this play, I had been rehearsing it way longer than any other rehearsal process and when the time finally was when like when my when i finally make my exit for the very last time i felt very emotional this is sounds so cheesy (laughs) because i was going to miss will masters i was going to miss this character that i was playing like he was a friend yeah. You know what I mean? Like it, it's it's ridiculous. It sounds super pretentious, but I actually I haven't really felt that for any other character. But because I spent so much time with him, yeah, I say again, it, it, it doesn't like exist. It, yeah, exactly. not a real person. Uh, but because I spent so much time with him and engaging with him and trying to figure out what makes him tick and all that, you know, I he, he felt like a friend, and it felt yeah. very very sad to to leave him behind. And so, um, but yeah, there's a couple things I want to talk about with Tom Hanks. Uh, with the Walt Disney character and ha- the way Hanks plays him. Um, <clears throat> one is I like the way he's written or more specifically, I like the things that they leave out. You've got a movie where Walt Disney is a character and he plays a very big part in the story. There must be tremendous temptation to make him the co-lead. He's mm. supporting. He is yeah. definitely a supporting character. Mm-hmm. Um, this is her story and the writers remember that. Um, and so, I like that a lot. I think if you'd had him in it too much, he would have overwhelmed everything. You need to see her with other characters and not just him. Uh, But the other thing that I like is the way, again, the way he's written, but also the way Tom Hanks plays him is like, yeah, he may be an everyman, except he is a millionaire (laughs) and he runs an entire empire and you don't get to do that without being a savvy businessman. Right. And so you see, again, little flickers of like, oh, this guy is a lot smarter and a lot more, what do you call it, shrewd than he would initially appear. Yeah. Even when you see stuff like she's walking into his office and you see him very quickly put out a cigarette. Like, oh, right. Even things right. like that. Like he wants to manage his image. Mm-hmm. So He needs to manage his image so much. Uh, so that people will trust him, but he's a he's a uh, a millionaire who smokes. You know what I right, mean? Like, right? And he's the head of a major company, and he smokes, and he gets what he wants, and all that sort of thing. And um, and it's just a really, I don't know. It people have complained that the film makes him look too good. And hmm. that Walt Disney himself was much more shrewd and much more unforgiving of people that uh, did not do what he wanted. And that there was maybe a bit of a streak of anti-Semitism in him. Oh, okay. Um, 
which don't get me wrong, I don't like that, but it's also pretty. I would say that's not surprising for the time in which he grew up yeah. and the uh, place where he grew up. Um, again, that's not acceptable, but uh, you know, I can I can certainly. It'd be, wouldn't it be weird? Wouldn't it be just so insane if in the middle of this movie he throws he just throws out some comment about Jews? <laughs> and you're like, what are you? What? What is happening? Well, and and if I don't want to derail you, if you have more to say about that, but I find it interesting where people can get so. Um, I, I I don't know quite how to describe it, but something like that. You feel like, okay, let me back up a little bit. The, I get frustrated sometimes when the criticisms that are hurled against a film are that it does not encapsulate everything there is to encapsulate about right. a real life person. It's as if like, okay, well now this singular narrative with which you spend anywhere from an hour and a half to two hours and 15 minutes, depending on the film, in this case it's like straight up two hours. Mm-hmm. You spend two hours of that and a good film will have a specific story that it's trying to tell and everything that's not the story, it will you know, uh, yeah. throw away. It will depart from as it should yeah. so that it can tell the best story it can tell. And so I get so frustrated when people criticize like, oh, well, they didn't, they didn't dive into, to Walt Disney's anti-Semitism or, or, you know, like a, a historical narrative, something like Selma or, or people will, uh, you know, say like, oh, well, this really happened or it didn't really happen like this. No. And I so badly want to just scream, you are watching a movie. No. This is not now, you know, uh, maybe it's a bit hypocritical of me, but I would hold a different standard for a straight up documentary sure. about representing certain things. But you're watching a fictionalized narrative that's meant to evoke um, key things about how this happened to yeah. hopefully tell something valuable about what happened. And I do think that I can see the cri- uh, the criticism when it comes to the idea that, okay, you're making this character look a certain way, and in doing so, you're being... You're running counter to why we want to watch this movie in the first place. Mm, okay. you know, or the sto- Or even the story you're trying to tell. Like the thing that always bothered me about um, a beautiful mind mm. is the relationship he has with his wife. The movie puts it out there as, "Oh, isn't this? Uh, look at this timeless romance! Like, right. look how strong right. his wife is. She sticks with him through thick and thin." Well, in reality, she divorced him the moment he was uh, he was diagnosed. Yeah. Now she still stuck with him, but she didn't want to be married to him. That's pretty rough like right, that right that, if i were him that would send a signal to me <laughs> um but uh and so part of me is just like okay i can absolutely understand why you would leave that out if you want to tell this great love story except the love story that you're telling didn't actually happen yeah at least no. like if that's if you just want it to be this other thing then just have it be this other, just fictionalize it completely right it would be inspired by this guy's life go with different names and then tell the story you want to tell mm-hmm. so like Again, it, it's it's almost like um, this is a an odd argument to make, but like the thing that gets me about certain Michael Moore documentaries is mm. that he has a point to make, and then he will stretch the truth and uh, sorry, he will manipulate the truth and lie in order to make his point. Right. And my think and my thought is, well, okay, if you have the presence of mind to realize, oh, you know what, the facts don't play into my point. So I better change them. If you're present enough to realize that, how are you not present enough to be like, oh, maybe my point is wrong. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? <laughs> if I have to go, if I have to bend this, this far backwards in order to make this 
a reality, right, right. then maybe I should question what I'm trying, what I'm doing in the first place. Mm-hmm. Saving Mr. Banks, it may whitewash these characters. Yeah. But it doesn't do so in such a way that the, that the story is being, and from what I hear, like Walt Disney himself actually didn't have that much interaction with PL Travers. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, this is definitely a heavily fictionalized story. Sure. But, I don't require that in this case, if you're making a biopic of Walt Disney, mm. like a full biopic, okay, I, I want to see warts and all. Yeah. I need to know what, you know, more than just, oh yeah, he's uh, the creator of Mickey Mouse. Isn't that adorable? Right. Um, I right. need to know more about him and I need to be made uncomfortable by the fact that, yeah, everybody has flaws. Yeah. If they made a biopic about you, you know, it wouldn't just be, hey, this uh, super awesome podcaster and writer, you know, we would see some of your flaws. Not that I can imagine any. And so oh, they're there. They're there. You just just have a 15 minute conversation with my wife or any of my family members. And, and oh, it, it, it'll be mind blowing. I'm joking. Of course, I can't. I can barely stand you. Um, uh, I, oh, no, I know. And so uh, that's how I start right before we record. I'm like, Reed, just keep in mind before you start talking too long. I can barely stand you. Um <laughs> But yes, that's what I want out of a biopic. And and again, his character is supporting. Yeah. So they could have written him as this very sage uh man who gives who just spouts wisdom and seems somehow otherworldly in yeah. how brilliant he is and how down home he is. You know, I mean, there are times when he is talking to her about what he thinks is motivating her, mm-hmm. and it seems a little bit on the nose at times. I think it, I think it's written specifically very well, but it could be very on the nose. And they could have taken that and had the whole character be that and right. have him be always 100% right mm-hmm. and her, not now, not always 100% wrong, but, um, but we see her warts. We don't see any of his. But I get a very strong sense that he, he is manipulative. Yeah. That he's very aware of how he comes across and that is by design. Mm-hmm. And that I know this, this actually isn't that big of a deal to me, but that he also smokes that there's, yeah. there are chinks in his armor. Yeah. Of so, course. and I think Tom Hanks plays all of that really well while also making the character likable because mm-hmm. Walt Disney was likable. You don't get where you get, oh, you don't get where he got being a horrible monster. Right. At least not in a public way. Yeah. So. And well, and that's the thing. You, 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 you have a general, you have to have a general rhythm where you treat people well, particularly people who work for you or work mm-hmm. under you. So, and, and like you said, like, like Tom Hanks himself as an individual is just inherently likable. Yes. Like we, we know enough, most people know enough about him and he comes off in such a way that's just like, oh, I'd like to spend a little bit of time with that guy. So there's a, a natural charisma and a natural connection to him. But I do like, there were some, there were a couple of moments. Uh, one of the ones that sticks out to me is when he is telling her during their first conversation that we see where he says, you know, I have never broken a promise to yeah. my little girls, you know, and you, you get this, this twinge of a sense of like he will do anything oh, yeah. to make sure that this happens yeah. and uh, and even just and it's it, again is a moment that i love from him where um uh his secretary or one of the people who's coordinating the communication back and forth between what's happening in the writers room back to Walt Disney and okay she has a few ideas mm-hmm. um the person says she, you know speaking about Travers Travers has a few ideas and then she says to him like oh yeah she doesn't like that Mr. Banks has a mustache and then he says oh i asked for that yeah she wants to know why and then he just because i asked for it you know and you get the sense of like oh 
his house. Yeah, <laughs> this exactly. is my house, you know. And he's a guy who's used to getting his way, which right. is actually which it winds up being actually kind of refreshing when she actually does push up against him and says, no, I'm not doing this. And he seems like genuinely mystified. Like, right. uh, I've gotten my way for a very long time now. <laughs> this is uh, highly unorthodox. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the thing is like, it's worth, that's how you know it's her movie hmm. is those moments feel like a, a bit of a triumph for her. Yeah. Even though we all like Mary Poppins and we want the film to be made and we know it's going to be made and we're on the side of Walt Disney, we know it's her film because when she has moments where she stands up for herself, we feel a, a, a moment of triumph. We root for know? her. As yeah. opposed to like, why don't you just get out of the way and let Walt Disney do what he wants? <laughs> you know? Which it's so, especially from that first half hour, it's so easily could have just dug into that yeah. tone. And it doesn't. Once you really begin to, to see some more nuance to her as a character and what Emma Thompson does with it. It, it, it we definitely root for her. Yeah. We we want her to be genuinely okay with yeah. everything that that plays out. And I think that's remarkable. Yeah, it's uh I'm trying to think if there's any I mean all the performances are very good. You got Paul Giamatti, Bradley Whitford, BJ Novak, Jason Schwartzman like a lot of them they all do a really solid job. They're all very yeah. dependable. Um as characters, I think Paul Giamatti probably rises above that because of what his character is allowed to do. Yes. Um, and I think he plays that well. Um, I don't, I'm trying to think if I have much more to say about the film itself. Uh, it is a film that I recommend to people. Oh, yeah. A lot. I certainly think that if you're, uh, it, it's, it's very watchable. Like even the second time through, I, I remembered, um, like, oh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's like two hours long and maybe I don't want to sit through that again. But, I got sucked right back yeah. into specifically the, like I said, I zoned out through some of the Australia stuff, but specifically the navigation of getting Mary Poppins made is very watchable and mm -hmm. it's paced very well. Um, and you're genuinely curious as a viewer of yeah. what's going to come next. What new wrinkle is she going to throw into it? And how are they going to convince her yeah. to toss that wrinkle away and iron it out? So um, I definitely think it's a, it, it's a film that, is pretty like you said younger children are, are probably not going to care yeah but in terms of like a family film or a film that that is pretty accessible to everyone i think it certainly is yeah absolutely um so so here's the situation listeners um we have uh the primary theme to get into uh and i want to get into that but at the same time uh as we were discussing this reed talked about a something he wanted to discuss which sounded very interesting to me and i don't remember how we were going to transition into it. should we transition to into it before we get on to like the companion film and the primary theme and all I that think we should okay. because i don't think that that'll play it doesn't my thing doesn't play at all into the companion okay film. so um i will say that like what i found so interesting about the character of pl travers which i think however you may feel about how she's portrayed in Saving Mr. Banks, I think this was true to the, the real person, mm -hmm. is that she was so um, tied to this character of Mary Poppins. And Mary Poppins meant so much to her that um, it wasn't just that she was protective of her, but she was gridlocked. Like, you, yeah. you cannot do anything with this character that is not exactly what I want for this character. No. And I think it's interesting when people as individuals become so entrenched with 
uh, and and it, it might not even be a fictional character. It could be a historical figure, or it could be um, you know someone from. I think of it a lot when I think about the way that most Christians respond to biblical films. Mm-hmm. So so they you know I I don't want to tangent us too much on this, but there's often a vast amount of extreme criticism hurled at any sort of religious film unless it's something where they literally took the text of the Bible right. and filmed the text of the Bible. Which they have done. Exactly. There's at least one film that I can think of, I think, called The Gospel of John, where yeah, they, where they which do has, that. Which uh, has Desmond as Jesus, right? I know, it is. It's Henry. That's not his Cusick. name. <laughs> I know. Yeah. But, but, uh, but yeah, I've met him, by the way. He's a really nice guy. Oh, good. Um, so, but the, but the, the thing that's interesting is that people will get so defensive of well no that they've changed too much or they've yeah. done they've done too much exploration yeah. with that and they're it was all over Noah I mean people oh exactly hated it uh, Noah is what I keep thinking of that that so so Darren Aronofsky has this idea he uses the story of Noah as a launch pad and and I'm not gonna either you know defend that film or uh, horribly antagonize its critics yeah. but the the fact is. That if we get so protective of a narrative as if yeah. this only belongs to us, like we, we as, you know, you could say we as Christians or we as, um, you know, uh, if you come from a particular heritage and you feel a certain way mm-hmm. about that history and the things that happened in that history, if you say that story belongs only to us, I don't want to be disrespectful and say, you know, that no, it doesn't belong only to you because I, I think there's a definite value to respecting what actually happened or how it, it, it actually, what it actually does mean to those people. But I think there should be some liberty, yeah. especially in creative storytelling, to say, well, this makes me think of this. It makes me feel this way about it. And, you know, you look at, the way P.L. Travers felt about Mary Poppins was drastically different from the way Walt Disney felt about her, but they yeah. both loved her. Yeah. You know, you get the distinct sense in Saving Mr. Banks that that character means a lot to these individual people for, for completely different reasons. And the more Travers says, no, you can't do that, it almost, the more bitter she comes off, the more pained she is, the, the, the more hurtful it is for her to remember the, the reasons that she wrote the character to begin with. Yeah. And I think that's very interesting. And I find that you look at the way, uh, interpretations, this is the first thing that I thought of is the way that interpretations of the Bible happen or the way that, uh, films made about biblical narratives happen and the way uh, some people who feel so personally connected to those get get almost violent right away, and well, you can't do that to to this story. And it doesn't even have to to stop with biblical narrative. Sometimes you can hear uh, the way people feel about Star Wars or the Alien series or something like that, and then a new sequel comes out that's that's not in line with that and the phrase that i find so you know uh, it's almost absurd like that that the phrase they use is they say you've raped my childhood yep. which i'm like what what a thing to say about yeah. about this you know uh, uh, again it's this idea of now it belongs to you yeah. and that's all over fan culture right now like we're living in an age where 
you've got fans responding to the casting decisions of movies. And I think we've even talked about this in other contexts, but you're responding to the casting decisions of films that we've never even seen. Yeah. We don't know how well they're going to be put together. We don't know, but what they're going to blow us away with their interpretation or, uh, as like in Heath Ledger with the Joker, help us redefine that character. Yeah. And, um, and so Travers is not open to that in Saving Mr. Banks. She's not of open to that with Mary Poppins. I feel like a lot of, I just keep going back to a, because I am one. So I feel like I'm freer to talk about it. Um, Christians get that way with biblical narratives. You no. can't do that with the character of Noah, or you can't do that with the character of Moses. And the, the further you dig yourself in to no, we own that. So you can't no. do it with that. I think that that actually, then the story stops being inspirational and liberating to you, and it stops um, uh, being sort of functional in your life. And now it's almost like a prison. Now uh, nothing more can be said. Yeah. Nothing more can be explored. And and the if it can't be further explored, if it can't be further lived in, then it's dead. Then it's then it's just sort of a, a a cold thing that sits there and meant something at one time, but no longer means anything. Like right now, uh, when I'm expressing, my son's only three and a half years old, but I think about he will see these stories for the first time. Mm. One of the things that really stuck out to him, uh, he loved Wizard of Oz. Like he he absolutely loved it. That film as, was made as we all should. Exactly. It's a brilliant film, and I think about the fact that that film meant something to audiences in 1939. My parents watched it as a child. I watched it as a child, and now my son, three years old, is watching it and falling in love with it again. Yeah. And what it makes me think is if if we as people are, are willing to just let a story <clears throat> burst out there and be – whatever it's going to be, it will mean perhaps new things to new oh, yeah. generations. And I think that's a beautiful thing. I think it's a wonderful thing that new generations will now reinterpret these stories in light of their own contexts, yeah. in light of, well, this is what's happening in the world right now, and the story now means something now that it didn't mean 200 years ago. And that's perfectly, I'm perfectly fine with that. Yeah, and for the record, just in case anybody uh, gets onto us about this, obviously we're not talking about like, direct personal interpretation of the bible is like you know what i'm reading this and uh i don't think this jesus guy was god like that's that's right, not what exactly we're talking about. But exactly like, but you know some something like noah or you know exodus gods and kings which i don't think is very good but right just, but let it not be good on its own terms you know don't don't say it's not good solely because of how it of where it deviates from the bible because right what's interesting to me and i i always my argument for this is always last temptation mm-hmm. um where it it took so many liberties with the story of Jesus and it, and it but more than that it extrapolated on them yes. on 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 things and so so many people got so angry at this depiction of Jesus meanwhile i and i think a number a number of other people i know I watched that. I watch all these different explorations of who Jesus was and what he might have felt and all these things. I watch that and I come to the same conclusion as somebody who has who doesn't like the movie or whatever which right. is about Jesus. I feel closer I feel clo- in my case I feel closer to Jesus having watched it. Hmm. Um and in the same way like what PL Travers might have wanted uh her readers to feel when reading about Mary Poppins they might 
they might have genuinely felt that after seeing the movie, or somebody else might have arrived there having seen the movie, even though they're wildly different interpretations of the character. Right. But they, but you know, these two different kids have arrived at the same place. You know, there, yeah. it's there is, you know, it may sound strange, but like it's possible to be true to the spirit of something while still changing all kinds of things about it. Right. Um, and I think that's, you know, I think that is where the Walt Disney character, um, is in the right is I think he has a genuine affection for this character. Oh yeah. You know, if it would be one thing, if he was like, this is going to be a huge moneymaker. So let's just make whatever changes we need to, to maximize profit. If, if that were the case, then it's like, okay, I'm, this isn't great. But, um, but that's, it's not like he definitely, I think wants to do justice to the character as he, as he sees her and and as his daughters see her. I, I love that you brought that up because I think that's an important distinction is that the the goal for the person who is reinterpreting it should be taken into account. Yeah. And if somebody, you know, like a like a Scorsese with the Last Temptation and uh, I I think Aronofsky with Noah, that you they are trying to explore this story because it means something personal yeah. to them. It isn't just a matter of, oh, man, we're going to bank on now. Maybe the studios felt that way when they yeah. funded the movie, but. But I don't get the sense specifically from those two films that the filmmakers were just looking to capitalize on things. Right. They're trying to make very personal statements. And something you said, I, I like that that we're making a distinction between it doesn't just mean that your interpretation is accurate or correct. Because I think one of the dangers you could get in even in talking about Saving Mr. Banks is, well, it would have been very easy for Walt Disney to create something that was completely opposed to the author's original intention. Right. And I think those things should be noted. And I think it should be uh, uh, author's original intention, however old the material is, should be taken into account. If we are close enough to know what the author's intention was, then it should be respected and it should be known. That having been said, if it is respected and it is known, I think there should be liberty for artists to explore what it means to them in different contexts. Especially because... I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a number of people that will think of Mary Poppins only as Julie Andrews in the film. Right. They might be surprised that there are books. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and so I understand that. But there are still books, you know. Yeah. Um, it's not like it's a George Lucas situation <laughs> where he will not make the uh, or, the original film, uh, Star Wars films available, or at least not in a... Uh, in a uh, polished up uh right. remaster you know you gotta have a vcr for that you gotta have yeah exactly um I, although i do i believe on dvd he did put out the original oh, but I think uh, the original right. theatrical cuts but again made no effort to make the sound better made right. no effort to make the picture right. better it's it really is just that is really spiteful yeah <laughs> um, but uh but anyway so yeah, I think I think what you're talking about is very interesting and something we don't often get the opportunity to talk about on this show. Um, I mean, a little bit, like, which is to say, like, it's important to take the author's intention into uh, account, or or the inter- one could say the interpreter's attention into yeah. uh, intention into account. Um, and the but the flip side of that is, you know, something that I've talked about at length on Battleship Pretension, which is. Once you are the author and once your thing is done to your satisfaction and you're put you're putting it out into the world, you're going to get other interpretations and you can either spend your time telling people why they're wrong 
Or you can recognize that, oh, this person is engaging with this piece of art in a way that I never would have expected. Right. And you can, and maybe it's frustrating. Maybe they're getting it completely wrong, but you need to be okay with their freedom to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, because it's not yours anymore. Right. Um, if you wanted to only, if you were only interested in your interpretation, then you shouldn't have published it. You shouldn't have put it out there. Um, you know, for example, the thing that I always go back to is Vince Gilligan talking about the end of Breaking Bad, Mm. where, the finale, I want to say this without giving any kind of spoilers. Some people thought that it was a dream. Hmm. Now, other people are like, well, how could it be a dream? Now, my opinion is because it's so full of fan service that how could it possibly be reality? <laughs> right. um, I don't think it's a dream, but I can absolutely see how someone might think that. Um, because how could this go so perfectly? Um, right. But then also I think uh, – David Chase with uh, the end of The Sopranos, I think he chimed in after all these years and said, oh, Tony Soprano isn't dead. Hmm. Or uh, or maybe he says the exact opposite. I actually don't remember what he specifically said. I think because there are theories that Tony was about to die. Right. And, he's, right. and I think he chimed in and said, like, no, he's not about to die. And it's like, you don't get a say in this anymore. If you wanted us to not think he was going to die, you should have ended it in a different way. Right. Right. Like right. that's it's not up to you anymore. And I feel terrible saying that. Uh, because I, you know, I feel like it's important to be an advocate for the artist, but once to basically, once they're making their thing, let them do whatever they want. But once it is done to -hmm. their satisfaction, they can't control it anymore. It's not in their hands anymore. Right. And this NPL Travers is a, is in this film is somebody who wants to control her creation. Absolutely. So much. Yeah. And wants no form of, of different life to come to it other than the words that she can control. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is that at the point that we see her in the movie, uh, perhaps as a final button on, on kind of what I responded to is that, uh, you know, again, reiterating this idea that when you feel so personally attached to it and you're not letting it live and breathe, it's going to trap you. And it's almost like a like a prison to you as mm-hmm. opposed to liberating you. When we first meet her in the movie, she hasn't written a novel in, in years. Yeah. She's not at all able to have any creative output. Her money has dried up. She's at ri- That's why yeah. her agent is saying, you've got to go and meet with Disney. You're out of money. You yeah. don't have any choice. And you're, and you're unwilling to write a new book. However... Even after the tenuous relationship that she has with Disney and after all of the back and forth and the fighting that she does for this character, by the end of the film, the the Mary Poppins is being made and she is writing a new book. Yeah. And I think that I don't think that's accidental. That whole idea of, yes, once you are willing to say, I'm going to let let this be whatever it is, then suddenly your creative imagination and, and, and what originally made you fall in love with it to begin with might just revitalize and you might actually find a fresh appreciation for it and a new affection for it that you never thought was possible. Which actually does, will make for a nice transition into the theme that we're discussing, Mm. which is it's grief and loss to a certain extent. We've already talked a lot about that on this show. Um, it's in this case, it's more than that. It's, it's what you're talking about. It's like, okay, grief. What do we do with it personally? How does it affect our relationship with God? Okay. We've talked about that. But in this case, it's what now what? Yeah. We've experienced this thing. Now what do we do with our lives? You know, what you're talking about there is she has, she has been holding on to this thing with an iron grip, uh, for so long that she can't do anything else. Yeah. When she finally lets it go, she's able to literally move on with her life mm-hmm. and do more things, you know, yeah. and that's an exciting thing. And so, um, <coughs> excuse me, 
So one thing, the, the big thing that got me when I saw Saving Mr. Banks, um, and as so often happens with uh, a theme that I notice in a film, I initially think like, okay, uh, I'm not sure if there's enough to support this, so I'll I'll brush it aside. And then, then the movie will give me something else. I'm like, well, hang on a minute. Mm. And then it'll give me another thing, and then another, and then finally it's like, okay, I think this is not a bad theory. Yeah. So Saving Mr. Banks, it is about the loss that P.L. Travers experienced with her father and, and just childhood in general, just kind of mourning over that. And the way that she isolates herself as a result, isolates her, certainly isolates uh, Mary and holds on to Mary, right. but also really isolates herself emotionally from other people. Um, but what I, what's interesting is that over the course of the film, you find out the loss that other people have experienced mm. in a very, in a, in a, in a long monologue in which uh, that, that Walt Disney is, is giving her, he talks about his own growing up, his own childhood. Yeah. And that's his my own favorite father. scene in the movie, by the way, it's a wonderful scene. Oh, it's beautiful. And he is describing the circumstances in which he was raised and they yeah. weren't great. No. And I'll be referencing it more directly in a moment, but, um, and you realize like, oh, wow, this guy, like he may be, be a millionaire now. He may be a, like a household word now, but there was a time when he, his life was pretty miserable and it yeah. was made miserable by yeah. other people. Right. Then you find out about, uh, even the, uh, the limo driver played oh. by Paul Giamatti. You find out that his daughter is sick. Yeah. And that uh that that's a thing that he's had to cope with and he's trying to keep a positive attitude but you definitely see like a lot of sadness in his performance which giamatti makes he does such a bullseye job of maintaining he's always endearing but you see what's beneath all of that and he's great at doing that like when yeah i mean like when i mean i don't have a, a a kid but i know that like if there's something i'm worried about if i'm genuinely worried about like someone i care about Mm -hmm. then i'm only ever really like 70% 70% present wherever I am. Mm. And in his case, it's his daughter yeah. and she's sick. So my guess is he's only probably about 50% present, but he mm. has a job to do. Right. And so he's going to do it. He's going to be pleasant. He's going to be all that. But yes, his mind is always with his daughter right mm-hmm. now. So, okay. So we've got PL Travers. We've got Walt Disney. We've got Ralph, the limo driver. What put me over was Robert Sherman played by B.J. Novak, mm. who walks with a cane. Yeah. They don't really call much attention to it, but at one moment, P.L. Travers asks, why does he walk with a cane? And someone said he was shot. So, like, he went in, you know, he obviously he fought in the war. Yeah, that's the assumption. And he was shot, and now his leg is injured forever. That's mm. his life now. In his case, I mean, obviously, there's the horrors of war, that he has experienced. But in, in his case, like he has been genuinely hurt and he can never, exi- and he can't live his life the way he would have otherwise. Right. And in that moment, now she winds up making a joke about his being shot. <laughs> um, but it gets us to see the character. It, it got me to see the character a different way. Yes. Like, even though he's walking with a cane, like there's something about the very, bl- the very, um, blunt way that someone says he was shot. 
Yeah. Like how, and, and you, I immediately think like how scary it must have been for him in war to get shot and wonder what's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, is the war, is the wound worse than he thought it was going to be? Is it, is he going to bleed to death? Yeah. Uh, is he going to lose his leg? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm just going to walk with a limp the rest of my life. Okay. So I'm never going to be able to run. So that's out. Right. Um, I'll never be able to play my kids with the way, play with my kids the way I'd like to. Um, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. And it just re, it recontextualizes that character. Mm hmm. And so that's four characters right there. And four is enough for me to recognize they all probably have something. Yeah. Um, they all have their motivations for doing something. They all have the thing that haunts them in the back of their mind that keeps them from being 100% present or maybe the thing that drives them, mm. uh, you know, to maintain a certain t- certain kind of control. You know, I mean, his character played by bj BJ novak he's the one who is a bit who's a bit short-tempered with pl travers he's the one who feels like he just we don't have time for this this is ridiculous he seems to have a bit of a a chip on his shoulder but at the same time were i shot and had to walk with a cane the rest of my life maybe i would too maybe i would be that way as well and so what's so what's interesting is this idea of like pain whether it be emotional physical spiritual whatever it can be very isolating if we let it be. But at the same time, if you just take the time to look at other people and listen to other people, you realize everybody has their thing and everybody could everybody could take this and use it as an excuse to isolate themselves from the world and certainly judge the world as, as uh, undeserving uh, yeah. in some way. And so that's one option. The other option is to is to recognize that because everybody has their thing that we're not we're not really that different. The thing may be wildly different, you know. It could right. be you know, it could be my wife died or my wife left me mm-hmm. or whatever. Um to go with that example. Uh and you could you could use that as justification to actually plug further into humanity when you realize kind of the universality of pain and suffering. Yeah. Um, and that to me is kind of, is what saying Mr. Banks is about. We see a character who has been, who's isolated herself so much. And when you think about it, her, her desire to hold on to hold on to Mary Poppins, that's, that's about control. It's about her desperately trying to control the one thing she can. Right. She hasn't had a whole lot of control in other things in her mm-hmm. life. There's a line by Walt Disney where he says, I think life disappoints you, Mrs. Travers. I think it's done that a lot. And maybe Mary Poppins is the only person in your life who hasn't. I mean, that's very powerful and yeah. very insightful. And it's this idea of like, you know, in the same way that other people, you know, I know that for myself with Jen, I get so worried about like her safety and all that. And, and if I could, I would like really, I I would exert some kind of control over making sure she was always safe. Like if it meant, all right, if I could guarantee that you weren't going to get in a car accident, if you drove a certain type of car, then I would absolutely buy that car. car. Right. And so, um, because that's where my stability is. You find where your stability is and you just cling to it for dear life. Yeah. And her stability is Mary Poppins and that's what she's clinging to. But it's, you know, it's a, it's a microcosm of so much more, the, the lack of control that she's had in her life. Um, and then over the course of the film, she learns about other people's pain 
and yeah. that everyone could be walking around with the attitude she has. She's not actually that special mm-hmm. in her pain. Um, and so there's an, a line, of, of course, by C.S. Lewis. It wouldn't be an episode of More Than One Lesson if I didn't quote <laughs> C.S. Lewis. Uh, and it's from A Grief Observed, which he wrote after his wife died. Yeah. And boy, I, man, this even as I typed it out, I was like, oh, this is rough. Where he says, no one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. And it's weird because when you're grieving, you would think that there's no fear because you've already lost the thing. Yeah. But it's just, I think when you're, it could, again, it could be the loss of a job, it could be the lo- uh, divorce of a spouse, it could be the loss of a, of a loved one, whatever it is. When you lose something and you're grieving over it, you, you realize this could all go. Yeah. Life is terrifying. Yeah. I have control over literally nothing. Mm-hmm. My own, you know, even myself, my own heart could give out. Yeah. Jen and I have, uh, I won't, I don't want to go into too much detail. I don't think it's like a really personal thing. We have a friend who is my age, mm. you know, he's like 32, 33. And last week due to a, a, a very strange complication, he's fine now. Thankfully he had two minor strokes. Wow, man. At 32, you're probably not, yeah, you're probably not thinking, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, at 33, you don't want to, you don't think you're going to describe yourself as a stroke victim. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now, again, they were very minor and he's up and about. He went back to work yesterday. I think he's doing fine. Yeah. Which is great. Um, but he actually has had to make some changes to his life that he wasn't expecting to. And he's frustrated about, uh, about it as anybody would. And so, um, and so. Boy, I lost my train of thought. Oh, yeah. Um, So you can't even control your own body. Right. So there's this fear when you lose something that I could lose this other thing as well. And then this thing and then everything. And it's terrifying. Yeah. You know, Um, and fear can isolate you as well. Yeah, that's the other component. And one of my other responses to to grief in general, it it, beco- it has become my standard response, not by choice, just kind of how I'm built and framed after 34 years, that uh, I I respond also with a great deal of anger. Mm-hmm. Um, so so grief usually manifests like like I'm usually quite if if I'm mourning something uh, that I feel I've lost that I that I can't gain back because we've talked about the sort of the obvious immediate examples like loss of uh, a loved one or uh, loss of personal health or mm-hmm. loss of a job, uh, loss of financial stability or anything. But it could also be something a bit more abstract, even just like the loss of an ideal. I never thought it would look like this. Yeah. Or I've, I've obtained this thing I worked so hard to to get, and it doesn't satisfy me. It doesn't feel good. And then yeah. you go through a bit of a period of grief like that. And and you easily could respond, you know, certainly with a great deal of fear. And then also, as I said, I sometimes respond with a great deal of anger and just and just I'm I'm mad that I've lost whatever it was. Sometimes that can be what might seemingly be petty to some of the people like I was having such a good day. Yeah. And then this happened and yeah. now now this thing has just completely destroyed my mood and destroyed my day. And and you could begin to go through, uh, albeit on a minor version compared to the other losses we're talking about, but you could, go to, you could go through a certain degree of grief there. And a lot of times what happens, I don't know if this is specifically what you were thinking about in terms of this theme, but when I'm, when I'm grieving anything, the way in which I interact with the world around me 
immediately and and drastically changes Mm -hmm. like when because i'm i've been described before as wearing my heart on my sleeve most people know and i do admire the people who can stay you know like kind of like the uh the paul giamatti character Mm -hmm. who goes through his life and you would think what an amiable loving you know like just just wonderful guy and you don't see the the pain and the grief beneath it unless it's directly being addressed i'm not like that I, uh, just as a person, I wear my heart on my sleeve and if I'm having a bad day, most people will know it. Yeah. Even if it's only just that I am quieter and more subdued and, and walk a little slower in general, things like that. Like it's just, that's just kind of how I am. It manifests mm-hmm. itself that way. So the way that I interact with people around me immediately changes when I'm going through some kind of grief yeah. process. Even if, like I said, like if it's going, if it's the, ironically enough, I, as a person, tend to handle the bigger griefs better than I handle the smaller griefs. Like if something major has happened, I can navigate through it pretty well and in a pretty healthy manner. But, oh, man, this, you know, this thing totally ruined my day. Yeah. My, my iPod went out. <laughs> and it's yeah. as trivial and materialistic. Yeah. I as, just loaded it up with a lot of songs I wanted to hear and a podcast, now, and I've got a long road trip ahead and of me. And now I cannot hear any of them. Now I have to listen to the stupid radio and hear Sweet Home Alabama again. <laughs> and and obviously, if we're talking about it objectively, that is a very materialistic thing. That is, you know, it it's just stuff at the end of the day. But if I'm if I'm grieving that, that means something to me. I, yeah. It's going to change how yeah. I move through my day. And it, it's I don't know. It, it's interesting to me. I love that book, by the way. And I I, I will say with no um, intentional self-awareness or, or, or uh, act, you know, like trying to plug something. If you have ever suffered any degree of profound loss in your life, A Grief Observed is a powerful book. Yeah. It is it is relentlessly honest, which there are many books out there that are very honest about going through grief. But I admire C.S. Lewis more for that book than for any of his apologetics books or yeah. his his lyrical books or the Chronicles of Narnia or anything. A Grief Observed is – I think it is my favorite book by him because of how raw and fearless he is. Yeah, he's not an author we would describe as raw by and large, but no. to read that and to read, he, he seems like he always has the, has the answers. Mm-hmm. So to read a book where he certainly does not seem that and, and, and knows it. Exactly. Uh, it's, it's pretty rough. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a wonderful, powerful book. So, so we're talking about the idea of grief and how it can relate to the idea of community mm-hmm. and being a, and either unplugging or plugging into a community uh, and letting that happen. Um, I will tell a, a, actually a quick story that I wasn't anticipating telling. Uh, once again, I'm going to talk about, ah, whoa, I literally started doing it. Just, uh, just, oh boy, this was very pressing. Oh, okay. Um, when you lose somebody and I've lost many people over the years, um, there is, an expectation that undoubtedly you probably put on yourself. There's an expectation that like, okay, I will be allowed by society to grieve a year. Oh yeah. Or maybe a year and a half. If people are feeling generous, I will be allowed that any time after that. If I, in my case, it's my dad. Any time after that, if I bring him up, yeah, yeah. People will listen, but I know, mm. I know that underneath 
they're like, he's talking about his dad again. Great. Hmm. Yeah, we get it. He's dead. That's a bummer. I'm very sad for you, but I've got my own life to live. That's what I assume people have been thinking every time I bring up my dad for the last 11 or 12 years. Yeah. Um, And to the extent that even now, as I started telling the story, as I started to to tell this, um, I felt the need to proceed it by anticipating what people might have thought when they heard it, which was, and basically showed that I'm aware. Yes, I'm aware that I'm talking about my dad again, and we've all heard plenty of things about it. I get it. Uh, I'm sorry about that, but we need to move on. People might not be thinking that at all. Yeah. Um, Father's Day is a tough day for me, specifically for the last couple of years, because I don't know what happened on Facebook in the last two years. Everyone decided that Father's Day and Mother's Day and, you know, basically any holiday, maybe. But I feel like those two things where you can point to a, sp- a specific person. Mm. The two In the last two years, everyone decided this is the day we yeah. are going to – and, like, just going through the whole timeline mm. of just father stuff. Now, that's okay. That doesn't make me feel bad. What makes me feel bad is when I want to post something. Yeah. And then I worry – that if I mention, like, I could go into a lot of detail about how great my dad was, but the minute I say was, I worry that people are going to look at that and be like, oh, he just wants sympathy. Hmm. Wow. That's interesting. <laughs> so it's horrible. It's I know. Just, and, you, and I do it to myself. I literally yeah. do it to myself. I isolate myself. I, you know, I, I have to force myself to talk about my dad at this point. Yeah. I don't like to do it precisely because of what I, how I think other people will respond. So in my, so like, I would have liked to write something about my dad on father's day, yeah. but I specifically didn't. And in doing so, I could have had the opportunity to plug in to the Facebook community. Yeah. Um, in some capacity, I could have been like, you guys want to talk about your dad's? I'll talk about mine too. He's not with us anymore, but yeah. I can talk about him. Mm-hmm. And I chose not to do that. I isolated myself yeah. for specific, for various reasons. And, and you know what? I I didn't anticipate talking about that at all in this episode. Yeah. But it's a very clear cut example of even after all these years, I don't consider myself defined by his loss. It's a part of me. But, mm-hmm. you know, there are so many other great things about my life and, and I've lost other people as well. So <laughs> I want to give them their due. Yeah. Um, but uh, but in those moments, it, like it's still it'll still sting when it comes to how I might phrase something a certain way. Yeah. And so. So I had the oppor- I had the opportunity recently for community, and I chose instead to isolate myself. Not unlike Peel Travers yeah. in her own way and right, in my own. Right. Um, so the companion film for this is the Royal Tenenbaums, the Wes Anderson film, mm-hmm. film that I've seen many, many times. <laughs> Shoot, I saw it. I saw it. I think uh, before my dad passed away, and then the day after. Uh, this, I was going to be hanging out with these people. I wasn't, I hadn't, my flight was on, he died on a Thursday. My flight was on Saturday. Mm. So Friday was a rough day. Yeah. I can and, uh, understand. but I already was on the books, to, like hang out with some people. And so yeah. like, let's just go see a movie. So I think we went and saw Rumpton. Oh my goodness. Um, wow. Uh, once again, that is not why I chose the, this movie. This film, I think, is I I feel like it's Wes Anderson's best. Oh, I would I would wholeheartedly agree, and I like quite a few of Wes Anderson's films, but 
Royal Tenenbaums is a masterpiece. Yeah. I mean, it's brilliant. From I, I can't find anything to criticize about it. It's it's just so focused and singular through the entire from beginning from moment one yeah. to the last moment. It is so uh, concentrated on. I mean, it does a wonderful job of evoking. Uh, sort of this hyper realistic, yeah. You know, every every shot is synchronous in a way, yeah. and that's just Wes Anderson's visual style. But yeah. it's it's uh, quick note, uh, listeners. If you still are unsure of what the word auteur means, watch Wes Anderson's oh, yeah. films. He's definitely an auteur, no question about it. And I think that's the best example of just all of his strengths at their height. Yeah. Everything what he can bring out of actors, what he can bring to a script and what he can bring visually and with pacing and and emotionally. Yeah. It's all just on fire in Royal Tenenbaums. That's that's my favorite of his movies as well. I mean and you know and I enjoy uh Rushmore as well. I mean I I enjoy a lot of his films. I didn't love Grand Budapest Hotel like a lot of people did and I didn't love um Moonrise Kingdom, as much as everybody mm. else, um, but I think I think Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums are a, a nice one-two punch, mm. um, and I think I think those are the two, maybe Bottle Rocket as well. I don't remember, but I think those are the two written by Owen Wilson as well. Oh, like, okay. It's always Wes Anderson and somebody else, uh, mm-hmm. or at least for for a few years, that's what it was. And I, the films tended to change dramatically based on who that other person was oh interesting um, i'll have to look back at, at and see who his co-writers were i know owen wilson was bottle rocket i can't remember who was rushmore if he was rushmore as well okay but uh, i know he was bottle rocket because i remember that's why my friend wanted me to watch it is because hey owen wilson co-wrote this movie um so yeah and then little did i know what i was getting yeah. into. <laughs> i'm actually not a big fan of bottle rocket i just i have a hard time watching yeah. oafs uh, just hmm. big dumb idiots just do stuff it's like well i'm not rooting for you yeah um but Royal Tenenbaums is, I think, a very mature film. I think it is, like you said, it's it's perfectly realized. Everything mm-hmm. about it is designed so wonderfully. And you would think that a film this stylized and this is going to sound strange. It feels like a film that's hermetically sealed. Like when you mm-hmm. talk about its shots, like its shots are always like uh, symmetrical. Like they're just symmetrical. That's- he just. He, I don't know. It's hard to describe his style. It feels like there's not a lot of rawness to it. You're not going to get a lot of raw emotion in his films, or so it would seem. Right. Um, but uh, and 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 especially even like in the characters' costume designs, like it it feels like I'm watching. You know, well, actually, for Battleship Pretension, I did a, a fantasy casting of uh, Clue. Imagine. Uh-huh. Wes Anderson directing a version of Clue. Oh, how wonderful that would be. I know. I I say I can't wait. I was about to say I can't wait. It's not actually happening. (laughs) Um, But, uh, but yeah. And so, um, so it feels like, you know, pieces on a board really is as how these characters are designed. Um, But within that, he is able to find such emotion that I, I would not have, I wouldn't have possibly guessed. Yeah. Um, and then I, I think I talk about, I think in Darjeeling limited that like he finds some really raw, some actual raw emotion there as well, mm. quite possibly because of some of the stuff that Owen Wilson was going through at the time yeah. personally. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but Royal Tenenbaums is about this family that is just so it's so broken. I mean, nobody trusts each other. No. Um, 
they nobody feels connected everybody has secrets everybody's lying to each other all the time there's really i mean it's really just the character of uh, ethylene played by angelica houston who's sort of the hub of everybody hmm. like everybody has a good relationship with her but not enough to have a relationship with each other right right and and when you watch it you just you know it's an ensemble film but they're very seldom all in the same room together like it's just you see all these separate it's one family, but it's all these separate stories. If if my memory, and and I only have just recently rewatched it, but I think there's only one scene in the entire movie where every character is present, and I think that is the the reveal of um, uh, the father's. Uh, yeah, how should I put it? Like his his ruse. His yeah. yeah. Uh, I think the reveal of of his the fact that he's not been truthful about what's happening. I think that's the only scene that everybody is in the room. In the room, uh, possibly. Although I'm not sure if Bill Murray was in it. Oh, that's oh, that's and actually right. Probably yeah, uh, yeah, Owen huh? Wilson probably wasn't either. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that's true. Uh, They're yeah. not. Yes. So. Um, but yeah, but, and then there are a couple of sequences. I think the wedding sequence is when they're not necessarily all in the room, but they're all in the same place. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, that's right. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's so interesting that it's an ensemble film, but it feels as fractured as like shortcuts or something like yeah. that. Um, it's on, it's a family, a story about a family, but they're all, uh, fractured. Um, and what I like is that it, it happens so organically that just over the course of the film, slowly but surely everybody starts to grow closer to each other often without realizing it just like being near each other because they've they've separated themselves for so long that that just became what they were used to whereas being in the same physical space as each other and just talking to one another even if it's an argument they just become more invested in one another at some point Mm. and it's uh and then by the end of the film they're together like yeah they they may not you know have a great deal of affection for one another at all times but they do love each other and they acknowledge that they are a family yeah and uh it's a i think culminating in a re- emotion a moment that i have a hard time even thinking about without getting emotional uh ben stiller's character is is literally mm. grieving his char- yeah. his his wife has died and he has two young sons to take care of. And so he's grieving, but he's also, to go back to that control thing, he's so terrified about their yeah. well-being. Um, and and he doesn't uh, he doesn't talk to anybody about what he's going through. Not at all. Um, he'd rather just focus on keeping his kids safe and that sort of thing. And then at the end of the film, uh, there comes a moment when his kids are, like, in danger uh, because right. Owen Wilson's character is about to smash his car into a building. He's gone off the rails a bit. Yeah. Um, and so uh, he is on mescaline. Very much so. <laughs> um, and so uh, – and the character of Royal, played by Gene Hackman, who is very much the estranged father that nobody really likes. Oh, man. Um, Ben Stiller, probably least of all, he has a real chip on his shoulder about his dad. Like he just doesn't like him. And he's the most vicious to him in his statement and in his, in just the, the, the sheer bluntness with how he's like, you're not allowed in my life. Like, yeah, he's, he's definitely the most extreme. And so Royal actually pulled one of, uh, Ben Stiller's kids out of the way. Both of them. Both of them. Yeah. And that now. instinctively part of me is like oh so it takes he literally has to save the life of your children for you to talk to him um but i think more than anything it just showed ben stiller like he actually is invested i mean 
almost nobody would let two children get hit by a car. Right. But at right. the same time, it's it's a it's an illustration of like, frankly, my kids would be dead if he wasn't here physically here right, right now because right. no one else did that. He did it, and it's a reminder of like, yeah, I guess this there can be advantages mm. to these people being present in your life, and it's at that moment that uh, that he says to his dad in such a wonderful and it's, I, may, I think it's my favorite acting that ben stiller has ever done when he just says it's been a rough year dad yeah his voice breaks a little yeah, bit it's yeah, so he's, touching yeah he's breaking down in that moment and and gene hagman does great too yeah he just seems so fa- genuinely fatherly in that moment where he just he said he's like oh, i know it has chazzy and it's just such a man oh it's so a, tender such yeah a wonderful moment of of connection um, and there are moments like that with all of these characters, mm-hmm. you know, even, even, uh, Royal who, uh, who is getting divorced from his wife after all these, after being huh. estranged after all these years, even his relationship with her new boyfriend played by Danny Glover, they even have a connection I know. that I can't repeat on the show, unfortunately, cause there's no swearing, oh, but, right. um, but it's like, and it all feels so organic and real. And it's basically people who have isolated themselves to repeat the theme and are finally realizing that they, they can use that grief to actually come that grief or that loss or that betrayal or whatever it is, that brokenness and that frustration yeah. to come together instead of pull each other apart and that they're better together. Yeah. I Not, completely they're agree. better as a group and they're even better as individuals when they are together. Yeah. And <sighs> Something that uh, that I think is very interesting. There's a there's a friend of mine who says this phrase. I I'm going to reference the phrase and then say what it evokes in me. Uh, you know, the phrase could be argued against, but he says uh, people aren't broken; that the systems that were meant to protect them break. So, in other words, um, it doesn't mean that a child is somehow a broken person mm-hmm. but if they come from a broken home that's a system yeah. that was designed to to be protective and to and to function in a certain way and then it fractures and mm-hmm. it breaks but so many of us translate the systems around us that break and fall apart um and then we internalize it and say well we're we're somehow broken by this and looking at the royal tenenbaums it's you know like a father who was abs- i mean Admittedly, as much as we come to love Gene Hackman through the course of the film, some of those early things that he yeah. says to his children, you're like, what? Yeah. He, <laughs> like, his his adopted daughter, he will only ever describe her as his adopted daughter. Do- he won't say daughter. <laughs> He'll say, this is my adopted daughter, Margo. It's so funny. Man, oh man. And uh, and, and there's some... It's real- funny, but it's terrible. Exactly. That's the thing is that the, it, it could almost be described as a... I have never laughed so hard at such... Uh, you know, just horrible moments that uh, that are just throughout Royal Tenenbaums. But uh, then by the end, those systems, people just stop hiding behind them as much anymore, you know, and and then they do start actually connecting with the people. And like you said, that like we share a pain here, like we share a grief, and that can actually be a place where we can sit together in this. And and I found that it's incredibly frightening to be vulnerable to somebody like yeah. it's it, I mean, it's just terrifying. Even the people that you that you greatly trust, there's always that hint, even of the people that you know really well, there's always a hint of like, I'm going to open up this this wound, this thing that hurt me deeply. And if they trivialize it, 
I don't know how I'm going to deal with that. Oh yeah. If they triv- if they trivialize this thing that really just smashed me, yeah. Then then that's gonna that's gonna change the dynamic of how I see that person in my life, even if I don't want it to. Yeah. It's gonna it's gonna suddenly now you've taken something that mattered a great deal to me, and that's another reason why to come back to why that moment with Hackman and Stiller is so beautiful is because it's just so simple of. He's finally admitting, I, you know, I've had a rough year, Dad. And then Hackman's like, I know you have, Chazzy. You know, yeah. like, it, it, it's just so gorgeous of of a portrayal of how human beings can be there for one another. Yeah. One of my, one of my problems that I have just as a human being, as a husband, as a man, as a friend, I always have to have an explanation. It's so desperate in me that I want to make somebody feel better. Somebody comes to me and they're sharing some sort of loss or some sort of frustration, and I so desperately want to have the sound bite yeah. or or the piece of advice or the piece of shared experience that's going to make them feel all better about it. And as hard as I've tried not to be that person, I, I sort of default into being that person constantly. Mm-hmm. But the moments that I've been most helpful to people, I think, are the moments when I've been brave enough and willing enough to set aside my ego or to set aside my pride and just say, like, you know, I'm sorry, or or not even say anything and yeah. just be there in the moment with them and go, this hurts. I can't even imagine yeah. how how badly this must hurt, and, and I'm sorry. And just, I, I think it was... It might have been Frederick Beekner, although I, I, I might be attributing this wrong. But there's a writer who um, who has said like one of the greatest affections you can show for another person is you know I I, I can't do anything about this or I can't turn the light on, but I'll hold your hand in the dark. I'll mm-hmm. sit here with you in the dark, and even though I can't bring any light to it, you won't be alone. And sometimes that may be the only thing that we have to offer one another. But it's better, in my feeling, it's better than the isolation that opposes it well it's that idea that the old adage of misery loves company which i feel like is used often as a joke at times mm-hmm. uh and it seems almost too simple but it's true like you know if you if you let it be yeah. which is like if you're feeling down if you're feeling frustrated if some if life has hurt you somehow and you feel the need to remove yourself for one reason or another um then I'd say go the exact opposite, you know? Um, and you'd be, I think you'd be surprised how people can step up. Now, this is from someone who did not post on Facebook because of (laughs) what I was convinced people would think and not actually even say, but think. So look, I recognize I'm not the first, the best person to be preaching this, but, um, but I objectively know it to be true. And I'm glad I thought of it while we were having this discussion because now I'll, maybe I'll, try to apply it next year. Um, (laughs) so, uh, so we have a a couple of, pardon me. I have a couple of, uh, quotes to, to say one, I don't know where this is from. Uh, it was attributed to being a part of the description on, uh, Wikipedia of grief and like the five stages of grief, but I looked and I couldn't find it. So maybe in the time since this was attributed to Wikipedia, Maybe they changed it. I don't know. Mm. But this is under the, the stage of acceptance. Uh, the, go- the goal of grieving is not the elimination of all the pain or the memories of the loss. In this stage, one shows a new interest in daily activities and begins to function normally day to day. The goal is to rec- uh, sorry, the goal is to reorganize one's life so the loss is an important part of life rather than at its center. Mm. I love that. I love oh, that description. Yeah, wonderful. It's an important part of your life mm-hmm. rather than its center. I feel like 
often we do two things. One, we either make it our center or we act like it's not an important part of our life. Right. You know, we act like, no, 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 I've, I've, I've accepted it. So I've moved on. It's like, yes, you can absolutely move on, but you're not going to move on without this. It's always going to be there. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean it has to be the thing that governs all of your actions. Exactly. Um, Ecclesiastes, uh, three, one through, oh, oh, one through four is what that should have said. That says 14. I forgot the dash. Mm -hmm. Um, now if people are, you know, if you've ever listened to the radio or watched Forrest Gump, you're probably familiar with uh, a song that, that uh, (laughs) uses this as lyrics. Um, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. That last one strikes me as interesting because there is a moment in Saving Mr. Banks where P.L. Travers dances. Yes. And it is during the Let's Go Fly a Kite sequence when she finally let, uh, when she's, she lets herself go, actually lets herself be a part of this community of the songwriters, these guys that are working together to like make a good movie and write good songs. And she lets herself get swept up in that. And she's happy. She's genuinely happy. Um, and so I, when looking through this and seeing that that's where it ends, a time to mourn and a time to dance, like she, Mm -hmm. you know, she experiences both more one, (laughs) one more than the other in this film. But, um, but yeah, and so to go back to this idea of like making it the center of your life, uh, you know, when you when you are definitely in grieving, like when something is new and recent, it will probably be the center of your life in some capacity. Even if you have to go and still do the things that you need to do, sure. this will always be there in a major way. Um, and so, you know, I'm not saying that you need to necessarily rush that out. It's just the way it goes. But um, – but to hold on to it for years the way the way P.L. Travers does in the film, mm-hmm. uh, it then becomes destructive in her life, in the lives of other people. Um, and there's and so at the tail end of uh, Tom uh, Walt Disney's monologue tour in which he's talking about his own life yeah. and the fact that his dad was I'm not sure if I'd say abusive. Now he's now kind of abusive. At the very least, harsh. Let's say yeah. that. Uh, yeah, minimally, he's he's far more of a disciplinarian than he needs to be in yeah. in in Disney's description of him. And yeah, and uh, and so there's a part of, in the in the story where he talks about his dad. Like, I think he had a paper route, right? And so, like, yes. he, so even when it was snowing out and it was like freezing temperatures his dad would say like you got to get out there and deliver those papers you Mm -hmm. know and so Walt disney at one point says i love my life i think it's a miracle and i loved my dad he was a wonderful man but rare is the day when i don't think about that eight-year-old boy delivering newspapers in the snow and old elias disney with that strap in his fist and i and i am just so tired mrs travers i'm tired of remembering it that way aren't you tired too mrs travers now, we all have our sad tales, but don't you want to finish the story? Let it all go and have a life that isn't di- dictated by the past. I, I love it. I love oh, the way yeah. it's written. There's something – I don't know. I I think everybody has like certain buttons that a movie can push, and it's like, I like what you're doing. Uh-huh. There's something to me about someone admitting that they're tired. Hmm. I Just like the admission – and like – and when they – specifically when they say like, I'm tired, like – in a way that implies more than just physically. Right. Weary. Weary. Almost, yeah. And 
because that's a tough thing to admit that like uh, life has kind of beaten me in a way, mm-hmm. or at least in this respect. And the way he says like he uh, not a day goes by that he doesn't think of this negative right. thing and he's tired of it. He doesn't want to think like that anymore. You know, he want he doesn't want to remember it that way. It's yeah. still a fact, but he wants to try to remember it another way. It's actually a big part of the film inside out, which I, which I actually just saw. Oh yeah. I loved, I think the last time that I was here, I mentioned that we were going to take my son to That's see right, inside yes. out. It went very well. Oh good. I was so proud of him and I loved the movie. I thought that, that I thought that was an absolutely beautiful film. Yeah. That's um, another masterpiece in Pixar's canon. Um, but yeah, I think that that's that the idea of, uh, that I don't know why I'm thinking of this so much in this context, but the center versus completely outside of the room. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's, uh, uh, a paragraph that Stephen King talks about when he talks about your writing desk or where you create art. Mm-hmm. And he has a beautiful thing that I don't have time or, uh, the ability to adequately describe, but he says, you know, I used to have my writing desk in the middle of the room and then I moved it in the corner because life is not a support system for art. It's the other way around. Hmm. And I, I love that phrase. I, I love that man in general, <laughs> but, uh, the, I, I think that it's important to remember, like, like you said that when we grieve and, and, and again, I kind of feel an impulse to say anybody who's to, to anybody who might be listening to this that has suffered a, a profound grief. I think we err sometimes in either minimizing it or maximizing it, which is exactly what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, that thing that happened, I try when I'm dealing with my son and my son gets so upset over the fact that like we had an incident and it was somewhat humorous. We had a friend who was coming over last night. And there were actually a few friends coming over and he was really excited because, you know, this, this uh, uncle figure to him was coming over and the person who walked through the door was our other friend, this, you know, the wife of this person. And my son had the most pitiful and adorable meltdown because the person he was expecting did not walk through the door. And as I'm sitting here thinking about this, I'm like, you know, that hurt to any mature adult would be like, this is silly. That's yeah. a silly thing to be upset about. And sometimes the, the, we talked earlier about like trivializing pain. Some, you know, what hurts me might be a trivial thing, but it, but it hurt. Yeah. It hurt me. You know, like my son was brokenhearted in that moment that the wrong person walked through the door. Yeah. And I think that if there's anybody out there who, who is experiencing this loss and you felt like it was trivialized or you felt like somebody didn't understand what hurt you, uh, we can talk objectively about the impact it's had on you and whether or not you are putting it at the center, but it, it genuinely hurt you. Yeah. And those feelings come from somewhere. So it doesn't matter if somebody else if it rolls off their back or it doesn't matter if, if these other people would, if it wouldn't have even phased them, it hurt you. And that's, mm-hmm. that's worth noting. And it's worth acknowledging. You don't have to feel yeah. ashamed that something, or you don't have to feel less than because some, something hurt you that might not have phased somebody yeah. else. Like that's a genuine pain that, that, that you're suffering through and that's valid. And you need to give it its due. That's the, that's the flip side. Like right now we're talking a lot about moving on and and seeking out community as a way of coping. Right. But one thing that I want, and so like in this Ecclesiastes uh, verse uh, where it ends with a time to mourn and a time to dance. Now we were focusing on like, Hey, there's a time to dance. There's a time to mourn. Absolutely. And so like, you know, one of the other things is, you know, to go back to what we were talking about, um, the idea that 
well, if you if you are going through something bad, let yourself go through that bad yeah. thing. Let let yourself feel it. That's fine. And then you know, as time goes on, it will the sting will lessen a little bit, and that's that is perfectly okay. In fact, that's the way it should be. You know, if you hold on to that thing and just uh, there's a there's a, the idea of um, just reopening a wound over and over again. Oh like, yeah. Yeah. It will heal. There will be a scar. You'll always know that it was there. Right. But it will heal. But if you keep opening it, it will be as fresh as the day that that it happened. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, like that's that is the other side of this. Like I'm not trying to shame anybody into not grieving over something. Right. You know, right. no matter what it is. Like if it's if it's important to you and you lost something, then let it be that. Yeah. And sometimes um, I'm almost, I apologize for interrupting, exactly. but some, sometimes I'm almost convinced that people hold on to griefs and turn them into bitterness longer because they've never had that experience where somebody said like, you know what, that sucks. Yeah. That really, it really is a, would be a painful thing. It would, it would hurt me too if, yeah. if that happened. Just, just basic compassion. I feel yeah. like a lot of our griefs, I know I myself have felt that way. I think my, you know, most of my family members, I know my wife would express that it's like we go through a lot of pains that we're looking around going, doesn't somebody understand that yeah. this hurt and that it, it's, it's hindering my ability to, yeah. to even function properly. And, you know, I need people to understand that so that I can start functioning properly. Well, there's a validation in it. There's this idea yeah. of like, and it goes to this idea that like, and it's not a bad instinct to look, you're looking for community. You're looking for connection. You're looking for right. somebody to say like, I do understand, even if I don't empath, I sympathize, even if I don't empathize Yeah. and you have a right to feel this way. What happened to you is awful. Yeah. So it's okay to feel like this. Um, you know, and so yes, like socializing and I don't mean like just hanging out, you know, and making chit chat, but like genuinely being socially involved with somebody can actually work wonders in helping you to not even get past it as though that's the goal. Right. It can help you to process it in the moment as something that is important. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, when I was, when I was, uh, grieving over my dad and then, um, I remember somebody said like, you know, right now it actually is okay to think about yourself a little bit and mm. how you're doing. Wow. Which is the exact opposite of what everybody says in life right. and is true. Right. You should think about other people in life, but you've just had the legs taken out from under you, mm -hmm. your life and like your life for the, for the rest of your life is not what you thought it was going to be. Right. So now, right. I think it's okay to take a moment and just think of yourself. It doesn't mean being some kind of monster, but right. just let yourself feel these things. Let's say, you know, someone says like, Hey, let's go out to a movie. And it's like, I'm not really feeling it right now. Right now, I realize what I just said is like going against socialization, but I'm talking about like when you're in the thick of grief, yeah. you know, like it's, it, you could feel things at any, you know, or the, the flip side of it is maybe right now you want to hang out with someone, but you don't feel like you should, mm. you feel like, no, 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 I need to be, I'm in mourning. I should be alone. No, just what you want right now is to be with other people. So just let yourself be with, those so be people. with other people. Right. And so I think by doing this, by, by embracing, by embracing community and communicating to others how you're doing, asking them how they're doing with, with whatever it is you might be going through in the moment, I think it, it helps put everything into perspective to the extent that I incorporated a line from Royal Ten of Moms that I love. Hmm. I've always loved it because it's such a fascinating little idea. 
So Royal has started to uh, become buddies with his grandsons. Yeah. And their mother is is uh, dead and then and his mother is dead. And so a thing that he likes to do is go to the cemetery and visit his mother's grave. Yeah. Uh, and then he realizes that, oh, it's their mother is also in the same cemetery. So it's a thing that he likes to do with them. So at one point he says to his kids, he says, anybody interested in grabbing a couple of burgers and hitting the cemetery? <laughs> hitting the cemetery. Now, <clears throat> it's funny but I love it. I love it in regards to what we're talking about. He's going with someone, mm-hmm. using it as an as an opportunity to grow closer with these people. Yeah. It is not the focal point of the trip. They're mm-hmm. going to grab some they're going to grab a couple of burgers. Yeah. And then hit the cemetery. It is it is something that they're doing that day with each other and there's a casual quality to it Mm -hmm. and again you know if you go to if you have a loved one buried in a cemetery and you go and you cry it's fine but in this case like it is not dictating how he's viewed and instead it has become a thing that he can connect with somebody else about Mm -hmm. um and you know and i think that's wonderful i i love it um and so i did want to just throw this out real quick so if you are somebody that's in mourning over any number of things it could be a sense of betrayal by a loved one. It could be the loss of a job. It could be the loss of an ideal like you were talking about. Um, Whatever it may be, whatever you could possibly be mourning over. um, I just wanted to say Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. So obviously we're talking about socializing with other people and reaching out to other people when you're feeling these things. But you can, obviously you can always reach out to God and you can literally say anything you want to him. Yeah. Um, you know, I may not feel I may not feel like saying any saying something on Facebook, but I can still say those things to God yeah. and say, "Hey, Lord, I'm I'm really not feeling great right now because I miss my dad a lot, and you know, and these are the things I miss about him. Mm-hmm. And that's you know, and that's an okay thing. God is never going to say you're wasting my time. <laughs> do you not realize I am God and have other things to do? Um, you're oh. making me feel bad. You know, no one's going <laughs> to say that. Um, and so, you know, and for me, God is a person, but God for me often feels like a concept, like an abstract concept. Mm-hmm. And so re- having a personal relationship with an abstract concept is difficult for me sometimes. I recognize that he is more than that. Yeah. Uh, much more than that. Um, but it's a difficult thing for me to take something abstract and make it practical, like reaching out to God and then being comforted by the fact that he is listening. Yeah. Um, so once again, as I, as I always say with something like this, uh, listeners, if you have any advice on how to make this a more tangible thing for me, feel free to email me. <laughs> um, but, uh, but just because I don't necessarily feel that pra- from a practical standpoint, uh, I, it's something I still do. Like if I'm angry, if I'm frustrated, if I'm grieving over something, uh, I will, talk to God first. Um, and then I'll probably talk to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, and it tends to make me feel better. Sometimes just the fact that someone is listening yeah, and they're not interjecting with their own stuff. Like sometimes even that can make me feel better. Yeah, certainly. Um, And, uh, and then again, if that person is also going through something, maybe something completely different, like you can be there for that person. That person can be there for you it deepens the bond between the two of you, but it also enables you 
to better cope with this thing, mm-hmm. knowing that someone else is also going through pain and even a completely different kind. Yeah. So I did want to, in the spirit of this, I did want to, you know, put something out to the listeners, which is, you know, if you are dealing with something, whatever it might be, uh, I would encourage you to, you know, talk to the people that you love about it. Uh, I'd encourage you first to pray about it yeah, and, you know, pray that God will bring you comfort, but also bring you wisdom and how to deal with it and uh, provide you with perspective uh, so that you know best how to approach this thing. Uh, but then also to, you know, seek out people that you love and people that, you know, love you and talk to them about it and just, you know, and just maybe you just need someone to listen, in which case just have them listen. Yeah. Um, and then probably I'd say fourth or fifth tier down. If you feel like you don't have anybody, you can email me, Tyler, more than one com. And I'll, uh, you know, at the very least read your email and then I'll probably dash off a really quick response saying, Hey, maybe we should Skype where, in which I'm much better. (laughs) I'm better at Skype than email. So, um, so, uh, as we, as we move on and we start giving advice, uh, is there anything you can think of that I haven't said already? No, I mean, I think you've, I think just again, you don't have to feel alone in it. You, Mm -hmm. you made a very good point that I think should be noted that sometimes, a little bit of healthy isolation as in like I, I need some time to myself sure. to figure myself out is definitely a very healthy thing. But the, the isolation, like nobody understands this. Nobody, w- they will trivialize it. They yeah. will not treat it with respect. They, they won't get why I'm so upset by this. You know, that's a very isolated feeling that you don't have to have. Yeah. And I, I do understand that there are a great many people who are not as fortunate as I feel like you and I are in terms of the people that we have access to to speak with about these sort of things. Right. Um, and I, I recognize that. But I, I, you know, again, if you have no one, this is going to sound so trivial, especially to non-Christian listeners. But if you have no one, like you really can turn to, to God. You can turn yeah. to the Lord and just and just cry out to, in your estimation of it, if you don't believe in God, cry out to the air. Because I, I have found in that, in that experience is that it is amazing how I feel like somebody is listening. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't, don't feel like you have to completely shut yourself off because there is somebody out there who, who will be willing to listen, who will share right. uh, maybe a similar experience. Um, I was just decompressing with a coworker earlier this week, or I say it was actually toward the end of last week, how, like exactly what you just said, just talking about it with somebody who, who nods and I know is listening to me mm. gives me strength and and power over this thing instead of it power over me yeah. to to press me down and to and to sort of control or move me and and i think that's why that bible verse says like the reason that those who mourn are blessed is because they will experience comfort yeah and that is a that's a beautiful thing like i the the relief that comes after an anguish is a really beautiful and powerful emotion so i think just don't don't let yourself feel isolated don't let yourself believe the lie and i do think it is a lie that you are the only person who's ever gone through this that you're the only one who's ever experienced this and that nobody else can possibly understand what this is going through that that i believe is a lie we fabricate for ourselves and i believe other forces and other people sometimes fabricate for us 
to entrench our isolation. Like, well, no, you know, nobody's as messed up as you are. That's that's simply a lie. There are there are a lot of people who have gone through, uh, even if it's not the specific experience, a similar enough experience to be able to find a hand worth holding in the midst of whatever you're going through. And when you say that lie of like, no one understands what I'm going through, literally no one in history and no one now has been through this. Mm. Then that can be, uh, that can be sort of justifying behavior that you know is wrong. Like mm. you might do something horrible to someone and they're like, why would you do that? It's like, you don't know. You don't know what I've been through. Right. You know, right. um, it's like maybe once you, you know, once you've been where I have been, you would know that this right. is okay. Right. You know, it's a, you know, that's, that's when, yes, when maybe you're making it a little bit too much about you <laughs> when you, when you are focusing too much on yourself. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting as we've been talking about these movies, all I want to do is rewatch Royal Tenenbaums. All I want to do is purchase Saving Mr. Banks because <laughs> I, because I do want to see those performances again. I want to yeah. see those scenes again that we talked about. Like, because I do think it's it's a, a really good movie that I highly recommend. Yeah. Um, it's not the type of movie where there's spoilers, so I feel like we've been able to speak freely. And if you haven't seen it, seek it out. I think you'll like it a lot. And certainly if you haven't seen Royal Tenenbaums, seek that one out. Oh, that's a so, yeah. In the meantime, uh, as I said before, you can email me, Tyler, more than one lesson.com. You can follow me on Twitter at more lessons. You can also, uh, follow us on, uh, Facebook. Um, I think that is about it. Reed, where can people find you online? Well, the, the primary place right now, although, uh, I am working on expanding this a bit, Watch but, out. Uh, but the primary place right now to find me online would be, uh, probably Twitter, just at Reed Lackey, uh, all one word. And, um, and yeah, I'm actually looking, looking into some possibilities about maybe expanding my web presence, but that's a conversation for another time. Absolutely. And so. it's, it's one we'll definitely have on the show. What? <laughs> all right. So, um, all right. So thanks everybody for listening. Reed, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. And we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.